Well, I would invite you to turn to the second chapter of the New Testament book of Romans, page 796 and 97 in our church Bibles. As most of you know, we've been working through Romans verse by verse. We're in the last part of chapter 2. If you weren't here last Sunday, I, uh, I would invite you to get online or other ways that you can listen to the sermon and uh, have you to listen to one. This is one of those sermons that it takes basically two sermons, at least for me, to be able to grasp what Paul is trying to say, and I hope that comes through as we work through these verses together. Verse 17, in just a moment, I'll be reading from. All right. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, Do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will condemn you who, even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. A man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Amen. Let's pray together as we seek the help that we need. Father, my, my prayer this morning is much the same as last Sunday morning, that by your Spirit you would please teach us from this text and you would cover my weakness and you would speak with your voice which wakes up the dead and makes all of us hear you in order that we would be magnificently persuaded of your immense love for sinners like us and show us how you set your face against the, the, the deceptive machinery of self-righteousness, of self-promotion, of religious self-confidence, which Paul shows us lends itself to judge and critique others so easily or thinking we can teach others how not to sin. Therein show us our sin that you might show us our Savior bringing all of us to a deeper sense of why our only hope in life and in death cannot be our holiness, but may only be in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. My wife and I have been reading through the book of Acts together. We're in the final stretch, and something which has stood out recently is how the Jewish people and the religious leaders lied so much about the Apostle Paul. 
Indeed, they repeatedly lied and they exaggerated and they manipulated and twisted his words and twisted his actions. It was very, very terrible. But not only this, they tried to kill him based on the lies that they told about him. And, of course, they were religious. So, verse 23, if your Bible's open, you'll see this. Have a look down, please. It reads so true. If you brag or boast about the law, we have it, we keep it. So, commandment number six, do not murder. Commandment number nine, do not lie. You brag about the law. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? It's a, it's a rhetorical question. Yes, they do. And one of the functions of the law was meant to increase our understanding of how sinful we actually are before God's eyes. However, the Jews, taking comfort in their own holiness, which is why they find it so easy to con condemn others and, of course, condemn Jesus, also led them to think that we can teach others how not to sin, which was the case here. Verse 19, a guide to the blind. Verse 20, a light for those in dark. And so being so self-assured, verse 21, you who teach others. Do you not teach yourself? You who preach stealing, do you not steal? You understand that? We all know the answer to those questions. Oh, you know, but people say, well, that's okay. As Christians, we, we can do that now. We can teach people how not to sin now. Really? So a person can come into a local church and look around and look at me and say, oh, man, these people do not have it going on. Thank God that I do have it going on, and thank God that I can teach them how to get it going on for God. Fantastic. When I was a wee little boy, we used to listen to this pastor on the radio on the way to school, and his name was Reverend Ike, and he had a tagline that said, you, you can't lose with the stuff I use. So it was South Florida. Right, I know. And he did go, woo, when he was done, but you know, I didn't want to say that, but I did say it, so there. <laughs> I was under my mother's charge. <laughs> That's why we listened to him. <laughs> so it bears repeating that we began last time taking note of the historical context because that's so important. Paul's writing into something. And the context was that the world was ru ruled by Rome. And there were so many Jews who failed and didn't want to assimilate or conform to what they were doing and, and what they were, how they were living, which made them, of course, stand out. And some of their distinctions were observing special diets and worshiping on special days, along with all the things that Paul wrote of that we just read. And yeah, those distinctions made them stand out. And yeah, they hung their hats on all those religious distinctions. But no, it did not make them more pleasing to God. And no, it did not make them righteous in God's sight. They assumed it did, but it did not. In fact, it did not mean they were actually in relationship with God. Again, that was one of their assumptions, which is one of the points that Paul is trying to make here. The Jews, like the Gentiles, chapter 3, verse 9, are all under sin, and therefore they need to be rescued from their sin. So when the Jewish person looked at the Roman world, they do what happens often. They, they look at it, and they said this is a very decadent world, it's a self-indulgent world, pleasure-seeking, morally wrecked sinners, and therein they are cursed by God, and they are not really loved by God. However, when they looked at themselves, in other words, how they self-identified, they had a heavy, almost delusional, but clearly self-righteous, self-confident, but self-deceiving view of themselves. So their morality and their relationship with God 
See verse 18? We know his will. We're superior. Subsequently, not seeing themselves as God saw them, whenever they opened up their Bible, whenever they opened up their Torah, their Old Testament, that understanding was always in view. Meaning when they opened up their Bible, they considering God's moral law, they never saw that they were morally bankrupt in and of themselves. And that they needed a Messiah to save them. It's much the same way that a person would, would kind of open up their Bible now and preach something to you. Okay, okay, so you're saved. Great. But now, let's keep your eyes on you, not on Jesus, but you. And the focus is now is going to be on keeping God's rules and learning, learning principles and, you know, note which Bible characters to emulate and which ones not to, you know, emulate. But none of those concerns are the central message of the Bible. And you ask yourself, where is the cross? Where is the need of a Savior and all that? There's no blood, if you would, on the sermon notes. However, in that, a person, if they do that, is behaving like the Jews that Paul writes of here. It's, it's self-deceiving. Proverbs says this, Proverbs 29, 9. Who can say, I have kept myself pure? Literally, it reads, who can say, I have made my heart clean, that I am clean? And without sin. Loved ones, if Paul is taking great pains to show the law, morality, and its instruction, or even our possession of it, has no power to produce the very life that the law requires, why would we think that we can do the opposite? Only the grace of God in the gospel can change a person. And only the grace of God in the gospel can keep changing a person. 1 Corinthians 1.30, it's because of God that you are in Christ, who has become our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. So, over time, for the Jews, God's law didn't convict them, it didn't condemn them as it was meant to, but it became a tool for them that they would use to boast about themselves, and it was a rod that they would use to point to the sins of others. Meaning this, the very word of God, the law of God, the Old Testament, which Jesus said in Luke chapter 24, was to point to the bleeding, dying, reigning, risen Savior, namely Jesus. That's your only hope for sin. He's going to offer you his righteousness. He's going to make you his child. That understanding offended them because they thought that they were really not that bad. Romans Sure, but not them. And if you think about it, it's, I think it's one of the great curses in life as a result of the fall to be so easily offended and to be so sensitive about self. So we spend so much time watching and defending ourselves when for the Christian, Jesus Christ has paid it all. There's absolutely nothing to defend in Christ. However, the Jews... And all of that, they misinterpret. Listen to your Bible, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 and following. Jews, their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil is taken away. Question, what was in the way of them turning to the Lord? 
It was their refusal to see the depth of their sin, their refusal to let go of of and stop depending on all the mechanics of their religion, all the outward things, the external, and then the do's and don'ts of religion, and all their special righteous acts to let go of all that and to see how they, even with the law of God in their possession, even with their chosen status, even with all that, they can never be good enough for God. And therefore, they needed to be reconciled to this through faith in God's Son, Jesus. Therefore, being unwilling to let the law crush their self-righteousness like a hammer. You see it there in the text. It's all over chapter 2. They use the law of God to crush others with their hammer. And they would, and this is so easy, they easily pointed out the sins of others. I mean, you need to be like a three-year-old to be qualified to do that. And in that, they saw no need to repent. And they saw no need to cry out to Messiah Jesus to save them. So what you need to know is the answer to their dilemma was not stop lying, stop cheating, stop stealing, stop horsing around, and here's how. The answer is, here is your sin. It is so bad, and you know, you can't stop it, and you have no available resource to get you past the judgment you will undergo in and of yourself. You are in dire need of a substitute, someone to stand in your place, someone to pay your penalty, receive that perfection of that person as a gift. In other words, you need Christ. Because the righteousness of God says the only way we can be called righteous is we need to be declared and made righteous by, you see it there, chapter 1, verse 17, by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Will you just bear with me for a second? Is that anybody here this morning? You're good. You're serious about being good. You want to raise a family right. Marriage, finance, and you hate injustice. And you're an incredibly compassionate person. And you know that God can help with all that. But Jesus, he's not your savior. He's more like your assistant. You know, or maybe like a good luck charm. He's not your king. He's not your friend. He's not really, think of this. He's not really in your vocabulary. In your psyche. Your plans. So therefore, Jesus is there because he's kind of useful. But not because he's king. And he's beautiful. The Jews then, instead of viewing their standing with God as being chosen by grace over time, as we said last time, they thought they were chosen because of their race, their heritage, their works. Chosen not because of God's gracious initiative, but all their own goodness. And then they thought out loud, you know, they said things. And the rabbis would say, just because they're Jews, they're automatically protected from God's judgment. And just because they're Jews, they get, that gave them the right to judge others. And of course they did. And it gets worse, verse 21. They see it there? Thinking that they are qualified to judge, they assume that they were qualified to preach and teach. Verse 21, if you teach others, thinking again by your teaching that they will stop disobeying the law and they're going to be able to stop sinning and they're going to be able to stop lying and on and on, then if you're able to teach it and preach it, this is Paul's question to them, then why, you, why can't you stop doing it? Right? If you can preach it and teach it, why can't you stop doing it? And you understand. Just fill in the blank. Stop doing X, whatever it is. Start doing Y, whatever it is. Be more intentional about Z, whatever it is. Whatever they taught, they had no right to teach that, nor do we, not that way. 
Every religion in the world, and we've gone through this before, is essentially do. That's what they teach. Here's your list. Go do it. Only Christianity says it is done. It is finished. That's our curriculum. How was it done? And here, and here, why it was done. And here's what it means. Hallelujah. What it means that it was done. Now go live in the joy of the good news. You see, so Paul is making a case for God's chosen people that clearly, please pay attention to this, clearly knowing and doing is not enough. And if it was, if knowing and doing, you know, more knowledge, if that's the key, then why in the world would the Apostle Paul, writer, what, of two-thirds of the New Testament say that he was the worst of all sinners and he was the least of the least of all the saints? Why? With all his knowledge of God and all his, his qualifications, his knowledge of the gospel, divine revelation from Jesus, why would this, quote, know-it-all call himself the greatest sinner of all? It's a no-brainer, isn't it? Because he, because he knew it all, he let that knowledge do what it should do. Paul's knowledge of God, what did it do for him? He saw his personal need of a personal Savior because he saw his sin so strikingly in and with clarity in comparison to the holiness and the loveliness of God. So when he did that, then he could say that. And what about doing? Anyone in the room want to go toe-to-toe with Paul about doing? So, try harder is not Paul's intent here. So, it can't be mine here. His intent, the gospel, was to say, look, the gospel is not only our entry point, but it's really the center point of our daily living. It, it means it's foundational to everything that comes out of the Christian mouth and comes out of Christian instruction. It's like a Snickers bar, which is my second favorite candy, Snickers bar. Every bite you take of a Snickers you're going to get peanuts, and you're going to get chocolate. I, I took a test this morning, by the way. I got a fun size left over from Halloween just to, for you guys to make sure I wasn't lying. Every bite, chocolate. Every bite, peanuts. Every lesson, every song, every prayer, every act of worship, gospel, Jesus, Jesus. And if it's not and if we're saying to ourselves, hey, look, we just need some more moral education. Okay, just more of that. Or we're going to say to the world, as in the case of the, the Jews, you sinful Gentiles. And begin to judge them. You rascals, look at you doing this and that and spending your money there and doing all that kind of stuff. And you can just fill in the blank over the centuries, right? You blacks, you browns, you liberals, you LGBTQ people, you hippies, you rich people, you city folk, you country folk, you conservative, you movie-going, card-playing, iPhone-loving sinner. I said iPhone because they're pretty expensive. And if you get one, people look like, why did you do that? Don't you know how many in that kind of argument? You are all lawbreakers. And we're the moral ones. What is it? The moral majority. If we say that, if we think that, Paul says, what right do we have? What right? The Jews here, the religious moral person he speaks to, like that, they never really examined themselves because they never felt the need for examination. 
So if our message to the world, if that is our understanding, instead of, listen, we are extremely broken people who sin every day, but we have been rescued from the penalty of sin by the grace of God through faith and the precious blood of Jesus. I am not what I should be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be, and I am God's child now, and I am God's friend. I am broken. I am frail. I hate myself. This is me. I hate myself sometimes, but I'm God's child. Jesus made it possible. Now let me tell you all about him. That'll work. 2 Samuel 7, 18. Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And of course, he didn't say, do you know who I am? Because when we moralize with the world, that's essentially what we're saying. Do you know what we are and who we are? Jesus' own words, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save it. There's a movie coming out, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. It's, it's Mr. Rogers' story. He was a big, we're a big fan of him in our household. Last week, The Atlantic had a wonderful article about the actual uh, reporter who was part and parcel of the movie. Of course, they changed the names. In the movie, the gentleman's name is Lloyd Ogilvie. And he's in a real pickle. He's done some awful things. And he says to Mr. Rogers, you love people like me? Mr. Rogers says, what kind of people like me? Not you, but me. Get that? What kind of people like me? And Lloyd says, broken people. And a friendship was born. So if that's us, the likelihood of verse 24 happening, you see it there? God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The likelihood of that is decreased. It, it could happen, we understand. But if it happens, it's on the person. Because we've not tried to secure the moral high ground. Because no one practices what they preach if what they preach is something other than the gospel. Tied to the gospel. Relied on the gospel. The full counsel of God. Acts chapter 20 verse 28. Where Jesus is the hero of the message. Depended on the only hope at all. Meaning. At the moment when we think we have the moral high ground as Christians, therein we become morally critical of others, they can call us hypocrites. And they would be right because all of us, I hope, can, can say that we still sin. And you need to understand this. To not be a hypocrite does not mean we have to be perfect. It simply means we are to be honest. Honest about our failures honest about our sin, giving glory to Jesus Christ for dying for them, and giving glory to Jesus Christ for any victory that we have over them. So you see, because of the Jews, holier than thou, Gentile approach to the law, verse 24, happen. God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And and Paul's quoting from Isaiah, which means this has been going on for quite some time now. What, Isaiah, many hundreds of years before Paul's writing. So, what the Jews Paul writes of here is something like what we would call dead orthodoxy. And, and I wouldn't tell you this if I didn't think it was important, so just bear with me. Death orth, dead, dead orthodoxy is where the basic moral message 
of the Bible is, is subscribed to. And yeah, even some of the doctrines. But they do not vitalize the people of God. So there's an intellectual grasp of sorts. But the, but the gospel has had no internal revolution. So say it like this. Jesus is like a photograph. But he's not like a person. A real person. So the person who, who saved us. Okay, he's there, but he's really not there. He exists, but, and the Christian church then, which doesn't truly grasp that they are justified by faith and let it run through the course of their thinking and their existence, that they are justified by faith apart from their present spiritual achievements or, or failures are either subconsciously, we'll say, radically insecure people who keep working for something which is already theirs or incredibly arrogant people like the Jews who keep turning not to Jesus but to things that they're doing, the religious things they're doing. And that gives them their feelings. And that secures for them their significance. So as long as they're doing, everything's cool, feeling good, and I can boast both those realities are what we would call dead orthodoxy. And it, what it does, it makes the church in kind of into like a religious cushion, we'll call it. And so you're going to gather people who desperately, in an unhealthy way, need reassurance. Or in the case of the Jews, they need an audience. Right? Either reassurance or I need an audience. Let me just give you three examples quickly. There's a legalistic church. They got all their detailed codes, tribal conduct. They got it down. And the church always needs to hear that they're more holy and they're more accurate than the, quote, mythical others, whoever they are. The, we're right. They're wrong. And so they, they hang their hat on their morality and their correctness. That's what they rely on. Well, then there's the power churches. So what those churches do, they put a great emphasis on miracles and the spectacular works of God, and they need to have those things happening all the time. So there's, there's power, there's emotion, there's dramatic experiences. And when they see those things happening, their feelings are like, yes, yes, see, God is really among us. But when those things slow down and those things stop, they're like, where are you, God? And what do I need to do to activate you? Do I need to fast? need to pray more? Just tell me. I'll, I'll do it. The final one, maybe, is the ecclesiastical church. So they put a really great emphasis on tradition and rituals. People come in. They're filled with guilt, but they're almost sedated by all the beauty of the music and the architecture of the building and the grandeur of it all. And it's just like this great show. And you leave the show going, what just happened? And someone says, well, I don't know, but I feel pretty good. At least for now, I feel pretty good. Now, this is what I want to say. Theological accuracy, morality, moral diligence, praying in faith and believing God to do those spectacular things, beautiful worship, they are all fine, just like the law was fine. But these elements cannot be used to hang your hat on in your relationship with Jesus. Those are what we would call dead works, like the Jews with the law. And what it does, it replaces the reliance on the righteousness of Jesus and the focus on what he accomplished on the cross. Think of it this way. It's something like me saying, I like being married, 
okay? As opposed to, I, le- I like being married to Nicole. Right, I do. <laughs> but you understand the difference. I like being married is just really all about me, what I get out of it. So everything I do, even the good things in the marriage is really about me. I like being married to Nicole is really about both of us and how I personally am, am incomplete and incompetent without her. So if there's no her in the marriage, it's not really a marriage. If there's no Jesus, everything hanging on him, then it's woefully lacking. Walter Isaacson, I've been reading his book, uh, his bio on Albert Einstein. And Einstein is writing to his girlfriend, the little rascal. Listen to what he said. Without you, my life is not life. Do you ever find yourself saying that to Jesus? Without you, Jesus, my life is not life. See, that's the difference between morality and a living relationship with the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes before I walk up here, one of the last things I say to me, say to myself, say to Jesus, stand behind me. Stand behind me. Is that like superstitious hoo-ha? Or is that an actual need from a sinful, mere man? So the gospel saves us from the deadly trap of trusting ourselves to create the identity because God has already approved us in Christ and he gives us all equality equality in our identity which frees us from the fear of criticism of others our fear of the criticism of ourselves to ourselves so the foundation the very essence of our relationship with God, all the promises to us in Christ is God's faithfulness and Christ's obedience and not ours. Our obedience is not the basis nor the essence of his love for us. Not in the new covenant. In the new covenant, there's no if then. It's in Christ. So do you know what that sounds like? That's like a dad saying, okay, he comes home and the kids have been the worst possible kids and the history of the world. He sees all that. And he says to his children, look, it's Friday night. We're going to eat candy. We're going to stay up late. And it's movie night all night. And wherever you drop and fall asleep, that's where you can fall asleep. And here's why. Because dad's cleaned up the mess that you made. And dad's taken care of all the problems that you created. And by the way, it's so great to be your dad. And you are wonderful children. That's the doctrine of justification. And the kids are like, movie night, candy, sleep. Thy mercy seat is open still. Here let my soul retreat. With humble hope, attend thy will. And rest, rest beneath thy feet. 
The importance of this cannot be overemphasized. So suddenly Paul talks about circumcision. You see it there, verse 25? Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you see it there. You have become as though you had not been circumcised. So then if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? Rhetorical question, yes. He goes on, verse 28. A man is not a Jew if he's only one inwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is a circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. And then it continues on. Now, what is he saying in light of what he's just written? Well, he's not trying to give another way to be okay with God. Don't, don't fall for that. What he's saying is this. Do you know, you religious people, in this case, the Bible-believing religious Jews that he speaks of, or even the Jewish Christians in the church in Rome. He says, do you know, all your life you've been trying to obey the law of God, and circumcision was a sign of being a Jew who was trying to obey the law of God. Hey guys, how's that going? Right? How's that going? What you really need is a circumcision of the heart. What you really need is a new heart. Not obedience outwardly. That can be a con. You need to have a new heart. So why does he bring up circumcision? Okay, here's why. When God entered into his relationship with Abraham, he said, look, I want to have a personal, intimate, covenant relationship with you. And a sign of that relationship is circumcision. Abraham, I want you to be circumcised. Why circumcision? What was the symbolism, if you would, of circumcision? Why did God choose circumcision as a sign of this intimate covenant relationship. Well, God said, I want you to walk blamelessly before me. This was part of the covenant. And if you walk blamelessly before me, if you follow my covenant, I will bless you. But if you disobey the covenant, if you enter into covenant with me and then you go your own way and you do your own thing, then you will be ready, cut off from your people. You'll be cut off from the Lord. You'll be cut off from me, which would be the consequence of breaking the covenant. And circumcision, as we know, was the cutting off of a male's foreskin. And the reason why that happened is at that time when, when people would go in contract or in covenant, they didn't actually sign. You acted out the curse of what would take place if you broke that covenant. So for example, when someone entered into a covenant with someone else, he might pick up some sand and he might drop it on the head and say, if, if I don't do everything I'm saying, I, I told you I'm going to do today, if I do disobey this covenant I just made with you today, may I be as the dust, this dust that I'm, that I'm just um, putting down on the ground. And then also, a person would cut an animal in half and walk between the pieces and say, if I don't do absolutely everything I've said in this contract, may I be cut into pieces myself. And so what God was saying to Abraham was, if you want to enter into a relationship with me, you need to be circumcised. This means you are admitting, if you disobey the covenant, you will be cut off. Question, did Abraham really obey the covenant? Did Isaac obey the covenant? Did Jacob, has anyone ever obeyed the covenant? Has anyone walked before God blamelessly other than Jesus Christ? Because that's the covenant. No, we know, of course not. Then why in the world does God have any people at all? Why is there anybody called the people of God? Why is there anybody who God says, you are my people, I'm your God. How could anybody be in a covenant relationship with God? Well, here's the answer. It's in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. Listen carefully. Paul is talking about the cross and Jesus dying on the cross. And then he says, in Christ, you were also circumcised. 
He's talking to Gentiles as well, by the way, who weren't literally circumcised. But he says, in Christ, you were also circumcised, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ. Meaning on the cross, Jesus was cut off from God for you as payment for your sin. That's why Paul calls it a circumcision. On the cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, where are you? What was happening? The covenant was being reenacted because of us. Jesus was cut off from God, Isaiah 53. He was cut off from the land of the living. Why? He was getting what circumcision represented. Jesus was being cut off. Jesus was going under the knife. It was bloody, it was violent, it was painful, and he was getting the curse that we deserve because we can't stand in the judgment without him. We can't stand before the law without him. We can't even stand before our own conscience without Jesus. Jesus was being cut off because we lie, because we refuse to cut ourselves off from lying and lust and gossip and judging and on and on and on. That's not all. It doesn't say that he was circumcised on the cross. It says, in him you were circumcised, not a circumcision made with hands. Because the Gentiles weren't. But now, because of Jesus, you have a new heart. You have a new life. You have a new standing with God. Why? Because you were circumcised with Christ. What does that mean? It means you now stand in Jesus in this way. So whenever you read the law properly... When you, whenever you read, say, the Sermon on the Mount and you see the law is getting, it's, this is love, this is peace, this is generosity, this is integrity, that's not possible by me. Instead of saying, oh, I hate this, or oh, I'm going to change this, or oh, I'm nailing this, we say what 2 Corinthians 5.14 says. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced That one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him, Jesus, who died for them and was raised again. So whenever you see the law of God and you see the incredible perfect standard, it's describing Jesus. It's describing the character of God, absolutely, but it's really describing Jesus. Don't be crushed by the standard. Don't try to reduce the standard. Just see the beauty of Jesus. See the beauty of grace. Because according to the Bible, when a person believes in Jesus Christ and has life in his name, he gives them their life and all their sins and what they deserve were transferred and are transferred to him. He was cut off for us. And all of the beauty of his law keeping and all of the beauty of his life is transferred to us. That's why Romans 8, 1 means a lot to me. There is now no condemnation. How could there be for those who are in Christ Jesus? What what an inheritance you have. And see, once you understand that, then it pricks the heart, it liberates the mind, and listen carefully, it quiets down our flesh with all its grumblings, whether it be moral grumblings or judgmental grumblings or self-condemnation grumblings, the cross quiets down our flesh and love for Jesus 
and love for the things that he loved, namely unlovely people. That becomes the motivating factor of our obedience. So yeah, the idea of circumcision is a little weird. We understand that, but it's quite a metaphor, isn't it? It's intimate, it's tender, it's bloody, it's scary. And what it means is that our heart of stone begins to be a heart of flesh. And we have a new attitude toward the law. Again, we don't try to toss it away. We see Jesus in it. And we see God send his son to die so that requirement of the law could be fulfilled. And then you never look at the law of God and say, oh, I'm saved, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) That's like saying Jesus doesn't really matter. And I don't believe anybody would say that here. So you don't say it doesn't really matter how I live because after all, I'm not condemned. No, we pray for power to live according to the standard of the law. And when we fail, we're not crushed with guilt because we know what Jesus did for us. When we fail, listen carefully, we don't turn into like holy, zealous person and you turn on the rest of us because you're more serious than ever before about holiness. Don't do that. There's this paradoxical attitude toward the law. Listen carefully. What was a prohibition, you shall not, that's the finger, you shall not, is now in Christ an assurance. You don't have to. And one day, you will not ever. You understand that? The prohibition, you shall not lie, is now an assurance. You know what? You don't have to lie. And one day, you're never going to lie. When we're out of this body and we're in the new heaven and the new earth which dwells righteousness. So we're careful. We're diligent. We want to obey but we're not crushed to the ground when we don't. Nor are we hopeless. And we don't make our own laws. Right? So try to reduce the standard. We just elevate grace. Elevate grace. And we get back up on the horse and we ride. It's so fascinating. It's just so, it's so fascinating. Hmm. It's the storyline of the Bible. God comes to rescue his people. We're vulnerable. The enemy's coming. We don't deserve the rescue. We have been chronically unfaithful. We're hopeless. We, we're, we're in a terrible state. We finally see that. And we cry out for help. And because of God's gracious fidelity to his people, God God intervenes. And God rescues his people. And so here in chapter 2, and this is where we'll close, Paul is making a very clear case why even God's chosen people, the Jews, who were shown so much favor, so much grace, and given so many privileges... They need a rescue. They need a substitute. They need a savior. They need Jesus Christ. Just like everyone in this room. Should we end with Spurgeon or with a song? I don't know. Let's let's end with Spurgeon. It is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self and to Jesus. But Satan's work, just the opposite of this, for he's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves instead of Jesus. He insinuates, 
Your sins are too great for pardon. You have no faith. You don't repent enough. You're never going to be able to continue to the end. You have no joy as God's true children. You, are, you have such a wavering hold of Jesus. And we could add to that, I'm fine. <laughs> That's Satan telling us, you're fine. It's everybody else. All these thoughts about self. And we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking within. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it's not your hold of Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It's not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that may be the instrument. It's Christ's blood and merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to your hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to your faith, but to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers and our doings and our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we could at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus. Keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his suffering, his merits, his glories, his, his intercession be fresh upon your mind. When you wake up in the morning, look to Jesus. When you lie down at night, look to Jesus. Do not let your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus. Follow hard after him and he will never fail you. Jesus has to be a person to you. He has to be a person. Let's pray. God and Father, we, we would say what Samuel said, who, who are we? And what is our house that you show us such mercy? Thank you for this divine arrangement of the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, Give us grace as your people to fundamentally, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and frame our whole life through the cross, his cross, and his mighty resurrection from the dead. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for your attention. You're dismissed.